Good morning and welcome from my home to yours. I know this is going to be a, a little bit different this morning, but I'm still glad for the chance to, to open Scripture with you and to consider Jesus Christ uh, here in the Gospel of Mark, who He is, what He came to do, and how we might respond to Him. So if you have a Bible, uh, that's where, gonna, where we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verses 13 to 31. So if you want to go ahead and turn there, if you have access to a Bible, Mark 10, 13 to 31. And let me pray for us as we begin this time together. So Lord, would you help, help us today, even in our homes, uh, listening to a video, that you are still present with us and you long to speak to us. So help us to hear you, that we would see you as lovely, that we would love you and that we would even love our neighbors as you have called us to because we have met with you this morning. Help us in these things, we pray through Christ. Amen. So we've been looking uh, at the Gospel of Mark, and as we've gone through this book, we've seen all different types of reactions or responses to Jesus. Even in our section for today, you see uh, some people bringing their children, carrying them to Jesus so that he would hold them and bless them, and so that the children end up in his arms receiving his embrace and his blessing uh, then on the other hand, you see a, a rich man who turns away from Jesus with great distress. Uh, you see, Jesus tends to be a polarizing figure with all kinds of responses to him, some for and some against. So what determines someone's reaction to Jesus? Whether they choose to walk away from him, grieving or end up in his loving embrace? I mean, what is it that makes some people go one way and some go another? Well, this passage gives us three things, at least three things about Jesus that help us understand him and in turn help us understand why people respond the way they do and even maybe why you respond the way to him that, that you do. So we're going to see today what Jesus values, what Jesus demands, and what Jesus provides. And these will help us understand why we respond to him the way that we do. We'll see what he values, what he demands of us, and what he provides to us. So let's look at each of these in turn. Uh, as you heard in the kids video today, great job kids. Thanks for being our teachers. Uh, as people heard of Jesus and all of his mighty deeds, they would bring their children to him and ask him to pray for them and bless them. And I'm guessing this was probably not just like one or two kids, right? I mean, this, this could have been hundreds of kids. And of course, the disciples think that Jesus just does not have time for this, and they try to send them all away. You know, then and as now, kids a lot of times get the short end of the stick because adults, you know, we just have important stuff to do. But notice Jesus' response to the disciples. Uh, it says he's indignant. We don't use that word much, but I mean, in short, he's furious. He's incensed, irate, livid, uh, perhaps hot tears well up in his eyes. And he calls out to his disciples like, hey, what's your problem? I mean, you might know what this is like when people who are typically very self-controlled, uh, laid back, don't have a temper, begin to get visibly angry. Everybody in the room just gets quiet. Because, you know, this is, they're not usually like this, so this is a big, big deal. 
Well, this is the only time in the Gospels that this word indignant is used to describe Jesus' emotional state. Clearly, this is a really big deal to him. So, kids, uh, if you're listening today, you should know that Jesus values you. He loves you. The Lord of the universe, when he came into the world, he made time for you. (laughs) You're so very important to him. Why is that? Well, simply because you are you. (laughs) You're a child. You're who you are. And because of that, you have something really important to teach us about about what it means to follow God. So what, what could that be? This is not the first time that Jesus uses kids as an object lesson of sorts with his disciples. On more than one occasion, Jesus would pick up a child and say something like this to the disciples. He would say, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And the word here used for children is little children. These are infants, maybe toddlers. They must be brought to Jesus. So what is it about kids that make them Jesus' prime example for what it means to enter God's kingdom? Well, children are cute. Children are fun. Uh, Children are a lot of things, but when it comes down to it, little children are needy. I mean, ask any mom that's watching this right now. (laughs) Describe your children. Children are needy. It's their helplessness that's the key thing. Uh, I remember not long after we had our, our son, Grayson, I had this epiphany of responsibility. Yeah, I just had this thought. It's like, oh my gosh, if we don't feed this kid and change him and take care of him, he will not survive. <laughs> He's absolutely helpless. I mean, even the IRS has mercy on parents with kids. They, they know kids are so much trouble, they give you a tax break for each of your dependents. <laughs> and that's, that's not a bad word for what it means to be a child towards God, a dependent. It means you come to God as you are, without status, without clout, without assets, without power, without props or facade. And if you come to God like this, like a child, he will embrace and bless you. He values trust, humility, weakness, and dependence. It's the only way into his kingdom because it's a recognition of who we really are in relation to him. So... Grown-ups, let children be your teachers this week. They have so much to teach us about the nature of faith. So the next part of the story uh, sets up a complete contrast to the helplessness of the little children. This is the story of the rich young man, or the rich young ruler, as we often call him. Uh, The Gospel of Matthew tells us that he was young. The Gospel of Luke tells us that he was a ruler. So we call him the rich young ruler. You might think of of, uh, a prince or just, you know, a young, wealthy estate owner, perhaps. And he's the exact opposite of the children that we just saw. I mean, he's everything that they are not. He's important. He's wealthy. Uh, Maybe he's fit. (laughs) Notice he 
uh, unlike the children who are carried to Jesus, he runs up to Jesus. But his reaction to Jesus will be very different than how the last story ended. And he has much to teach us about what Jesus demands of us. Now this, this guy, does, he's got everything going for him. He's made a fortunes 40 by 40 list, uh, probably. And, and in that culture, as is oftentimes the case in our culture, people would have assumed uh, about this man, everyone would have assumed that if he was doing well, financially, vocationally, then it's because you know God's blessing was upon him because he must have done something right. He must have done something good. You remember the song, the scene from The Sound of Music when Maria, Captain Von Trapp, finally fall in love and realize that the other person loves them? You know, they sing this song, somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. And so that's what everyone would have thought, you know, about, about, about this man. And yet, like so many other successful, famous people, this man knows that he's missing something. He runs up to Jesus and asks this question about eternal life. What must I do to inherit eternal life? You see, he lacks assurance. He lacks a, a fundamental sense of secure acceptance before God and an assurance that in the end, all will be well. When he goes to bed at night, he knows that something is missing. Uh, in, in Matthew's account of the story, he asks Jesus the question, what do I still lack? So he runs up to Jesus and asks ask for his input. And Jesus' response you know, to his question about eternal life, um, it's profound and it's, it's enigmatic at first, right? Uh, his answer goes like this, verse 18. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And he goes on to say, you know the commandments. And he lists several of them out. So, okay. Uh, if Jesus was a Southeastern Seminary student, I'm not sure he would have passed his evangelism course. There's no diagrams here. There's no simple, clear gospel presentation. I mean, what, what is he doing? Keep the commandments? No. But he's reading this man's heart like a book. That's, that's what he's doing. And um, he doesn't even stop. You know, when the man tells Jesus, I've kept all these commands since my youth, doesn't even stop to argue with him. He doesn't say, well, hold on. Are you sure you've never stolen anything? Are you sure you've never had a, a lustful thought, really? He goes right past all that. And he goes next, he goes for the jugular. Uh, Jesus looks at him. And notice what Mark says before Jesus tells him what he's about to tell him. Notice what Mark says. It says Jesus looks at him and loved him. This is a tender interchange. Jesus looks at him and loves him, and that's why he tells him what he's about to tell him. Jesus puts his finger on the one thing that the man lacks, the one thing that's keeping him away from the kingdom of God, from abundant life, the one thing that he's missing. So in love, Jesus tells him something that he does, he does not want to hear. He tells him, you've got to give it all away, all of it, all your land, your money, your status, give it away and come be with me and then you will be rich, truly rich, and you will have life. But the man cannot bring himself to do that. Why not? Well, because to him, he had something that was good 
And it was not God alone. His wealth is what was good. His wealth is what he was banking on for status, for acceptance and the blessing of God. It's what made, it's what made all of life good to him. It was his Savior. He couldn't follow the Savior because he already, he already had one. His Savior slot was filled. He had a functional Savior, something that he believed he could not afford to lose, at least not and still be happy, even if it cost him the prospect of eternal life. He had something other than God that was his for him, his, his ultimate good. Now, whatever it is that you say, you must have. You must have in order to, to be happy, to live a happy life, a good life, even if it means God is out of the picture, that you must have that. That is the thing that Jesus will demand of you. Dale Bruner comments on this. He says, is the Lord this personal in every encounter? Isn't there ever an easy conversation with Jesus? Must our coming to eternal life to full maturity always be tied to leaving idols? Why is Jesus so ruthless? Because if you won't give it up, you cut yourself off from the real Savior, from real life. And wealth has such a grip on this man's heart that he's willing to forego following Jesus, possibly skip out on eternal life. And so Jesus deals with this radically. And he says, you've got to cut that out of your life. And so God comes to Abraham. And says, you must give up your son, your only son whom you love and have waited for and have banked all your hopes and dreams upon. Or if God were to come to uh, P.T. Barnum from the movie uh, The Greatest Showman, he'd say, will you give up your dreams in the spotlight for me? They're too dangerous for you. Will you stay home and work a blue-collar job for the rest of your life simply bringing home your pay and loving your wife and children and never reach worldwide fame. Would you do that? Would you do that for me? If you've seen the movie, you know that you know, Barnum's dreams almost cost him everything because they become his everything. Pastor Tim Keller says, the rich young man is in a power struggle with God over his dreams. Now, this is the only account, the only time in, in the gospel accounts that Jesus invites someone to follow him and they refuse. I mean, wealth has a death grip on this man's soul. And it threatens to grip ours as well. And anyone who would follow Jesus has to make this kind of decision. Am I willing to give up, hand over, dethrone, to cut the psychological umbilical cord on the things that I think I absolutely must have to have a good life? I must have this kind of job. I must marry and have a family. I must marry and live in this kind of place. I must, you know, fill in the blank. But you see the terrible irony in this story and potentially in our lives is that this man walks away trying to hold on to the one thing that he thinks will make him most happy. And yet he walks away, not happy. He says disheartened, but it, it means grieved. It means full of sorrow, like a a dark sky gets overcome with, with dark clouds. His face falls and he's, he's sorrowful. You see, it says Jesus looks at the man and he loved him. He loved him for who he is without the wealth, without the status. 
I, I wonder if this man had ever met someone who loved him like this, as he is. But he walks away from his only hope of steadfast, true love, love without golden strings attached. And when you walk away from Jesus to have the other, you walk away from the only one who loves you as you are. Jonah 2 verse 8 says, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. This is what this man had to give up. Now, some of you may be strangely uh, breathing a sigh of relief along the way here and thinking, oh, whew, I thought you were going to tell me that I had to give away all my money. Oh, close one. You know, but, but if that's your gut reaction to what I'm saying right now, then uh, that's probably not a good sign. Because if you read the fine print on following Jesus, Larry taught on this about uh, three weeks ago or so, you know it all goes on the table when we sign up to follow him. In Mark chapter 8, it says, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let them deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You see, we, we live in a society, we live in an age of great wealth. And this can be a great blessing, but also more than likely can be a great danger. Because wealth can obscure our perception of our need for God. It can make us fiercely self-reliant. It can become a broken crutch that we lean on for status, security, and identity. No wonder Jesus asked this man to give it away, and he may ask us to do the same. But in any case, if we follow Jesus, regardless of what we do with our wealth, it's really not our money anymore. It's not our life anymore. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. So this, this is what Jesus demands. And it's a hard demand. It's the death of our right to decide what is good, truly good. It's the death of our dreams. It's the death of ourself. But with Jesus, that's not the end. Death is always followed by resurrection. As the man walks away, Jesus now turns and looks at his disciples and he drives home his point. Verse 23, he says, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples are just shocked. Uh, I mentioned earlier that then and, and sometimes now, there was this assumption that the wealthy are the ones with God's blessing. And this guy has it all. He's in the black, financially and morally. And yet Jesus laments at how hard it is for those with wealth to enter God's kingdom. And he doesn't drop the issue. As they stand there, mouths gaping, Jesus says it again, a, a bit differently. Children, notice he calls them children. How hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And it says they were exceedingly astonished. <laughs> their jaws come unhinged, right? And, and their response makes total sense given what they understand. Who then can be saved? If this guy is out, 
who could get in? If even the best of us don't make the cut, then what about the rest of us? And so Jesus looks right at them and tells them, they're exactly right. With man, this is impossible. For even the best of us to enter God's kingdom, a great miracle of God will have to occur. Because all of the things that we thought were our greatest assets may actually be our biggest liabilities. We no longer have anything to bring to the table. This is his whole point. But, but with God, he says, it is possible. It is possible for rich men to become like little children. It is possible for camels to fit through the needle's eye. It is possible for someone to enter God's kingdom. But how? Well, Jesus only hints at it here. But a few chapters later in Mark's gospel, Jesus would fall to the ground in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating great drops of blood and praying again the same words he just said to the disciples. Mark chapter 14, he said, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. In order to make the impossible possible, Jesus did the unthinkable. He drank the cup of God's wrath so that the best of us and the worst of us could drink the cup of God's kindness. He did for the rich man what the rich man would not do for him. As Paul would write in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, he said, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Jesus, he was the treasure of heaven. He became poor so that in him we could become truly rich. Jesus offers the young man and us the greatest treasure he could ever have. Jesus offers himself. You see, he's the one that you really need behind all the things you think you want so badly. He's the true wealth, the true home, the true family, the true love that we crave. He alone is good. Behind the young man's unwillingness to follow Jesus, and even behind Peter's last statement to Jesus, see, we've left everything and followed you, is the same set of questions, is the same concern. Will Jesus provide for me whatever it is I must sacrifice to follow him? Will he take care of me? Is he good? And Jesus answers Peter and us tenderly and directly. Verse 29, he says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So if the call of Jesus would take from you the most precious things you have, homes, family, wealth, he will make sure you are repaid. He says a hundredfold. The demand of Jesus on this man is heavy. I'm sure this wasn't just about cashing out his bank account and giving it away. He would have probably had to sell lands that belonged to his father and his father's father. 
But Jesus promises to more than make up for any losses incurred. He will take care of you. And so for some of us, the call of Christ will mean not taking the career path we had hoped or not living in the location we had hoped or with the standard of living that we had planned. For some of you, it may mean living far away from home in a totally different and difficult culture. For some of us, it may mean living alone. But for all of us, following Christ means laying down our dreams and trusting that in the end, His dreams are better for us than ours are. So consider Christ, who though He was rich, embraced the deepest poverty of body and soul so that you might have the only treasure that really matters. This is what will ultimately determine your reaction to Jesus and whether you find yourself in His glad embrace or walking away from him in sorrow. Is he good? Will he take care of me? Psalm 16 verse 11 says, The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Whatever Jesus demands of us, he always provides for us above and beyond. C.S. Lewis captured this perfectly when he said, give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find Him, and with Him, everything else thrown in.